It was wintertime in Tacoma, Washington, a little bit over a year ago, and two men broke into a house through the garage of the house, set off an alarm. They ran. Uh, they took off and went through a field as the Pierce County Sheriff's deputies ar arrived at the scene. Here are these two guys taking off. One of them made it to a dumpster, jumped inside, hid himself under a piece of cardboard. The other one found a tree and went up the tree. They were both pretty confident they wouldn't be found. But not very long after that, the deputies went straight to each one of them and arrested them. Both of them were booked and charged with burglary, and both of them were also reminded that their footprints showed exactly where they had run to. They left an impression. You know, impressions left by the feet of dinosaurs leave an interesting trail that people can look at today. There are many places around the world where actual dinosaur tracks fossilized and are present that you can see. There are a bunch of locations like that. You might not be able to watch a dinosaur walk, but you actually can see where they walk because they left tracks, right? Some of them really big. We all understand this concept that when something is pressed into a softer surface, it leaves an impression, all right? That's important today to what I'm going to say, so put your listening ears on, please. In the Greek language, that impression is called, here's the word, a tupos. We get our word type from that. It comes from a word that means to strike, like when a stamp is used to strike a disc of metal and make a coin out of it. That is a tupos, a, a, a type. Our word comes from that idea, and we get the word typewriter from that idea, the impact typewriter. I know, most people have never even used one now. But we use that word type all the time. A type is the image that gets struck onto the paper. Behind the image is the, is the thing that actually made it, but the type is that image. Behind the print in the mud is the animal that made the print in the mud, and behind the coin is the stamp that stamps the impression onto the coin. One of those things, the stamped thing, is the representation of the other. Is everybody tracking here? That's a type. And this morning, I'm beginning a new series about types in the Bible. People and things that are back in the Old Testament that are that impression, that stamp, an image of a reality in the new. They're real people, they're real events, they're things that really existed, but they're bigger than that. They point to something big in God's plan. You know, the whole Bible is the story of God redeeming us back to himself. It is the story of God coming in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place, to die, to be buried, to be raised again, ascended into heaven, and then with the promise that he's going to come to bring us to be with him. Isn't that great news? That is the story of the Bible. And that's why those things that we call Bible stories are important. Parents, grandparents, teach them to the kids. 
Teach them to the kids how thankful I am that my mom's work specifically to teach me, among other things, those Bible stories shaped my thinking, shaped the way I look at life very early on. So parents, teach them. Teach them first. Learn them yourself and teach them. And one day, those stories will be your backstage pass to understanding your life in Jesus more deeply and potentially your children's backstage pass to their growth in Jesus Christ. There have been a few people who have come along to Central Christian Church from churches that never encouraged them to learn God's Word. And one of the things they say that they appreciate about Central is hearing God's Word and learning those Bible stories. That's great. Keep hearing and learning those Bible stories. Make those a part of your spiritual diet every day. They matter in your faith. Amen? Paul is looking back at a bunch of the things that happened to Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's talking about all these things that happened in Israel after they left Egypt, after they headed out across the desert. He says in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The word is that word for type. These things are a type for us so that we could live right. Those stories, those types, they're not enough by themselves because they always point to something bigger. And we should want to learn and understand and apply those Old Testament stories, not just stop at the story, but to look to the thing they point us to. By the way, the name for that, here it comes, is antitype, all right? That doesn't mean it's, the op- it's, it's against it. It means it's the opposite of it. There's a type, and there's the antitype. And once in a while, a New Testament writer will go back to one of those Old Testament stories, and he will explain that there is more to that story than meets the eye. There is an antitype. Just like there's an even greater story behind an impression or a footprint, there is a great reality being pointed to by these stories that we learned and learn from the Old Testament. So the name of this series is Are you impressed? All right, you think about that. Are you impressed? Because God has taken some measures to make an impression, to stamp an impression that we can look at now and learn from and grow. The Old Testament is full of those things. Many of them jump out at us, but you know what? There are only a few of them that are specifically pointed out in the New Testament, and those are the ones that we're going to take a look at over the next few weeks. We're going to learn from them. The first one we're going to be learning from this morning is a type that's found in the story of Noah. So grab your Bibles, that thing, or your device, and turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to look at the story of Noah this morning. Parents and grandparents, you had high hopes for your children. Lamech did. Lamech had a son born to him, and he gave him the name Noah, which means rest in Hebrew, because he was hopeful that his son somehow would bring some rest and some relief in a world that was a mess. Noah, he named him. High hopes. I doubt he anticipated that his son Noah would become the father of all mankind, 
and save all living, breathing things on the earth. That's pretty good. Many people, including people who don't know much about the Bible, do know something about the story of Noah. It actually begins there in Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The days of Noah were bad days. That's the point I'd like you to get there. And I suppose that you could look at it, you could read what we just did, and maybe feel better about the current times. I've never met a person of whom I could say, every thought of his heart is only evil continually. That's pretty bad. So I notice this about the ark story. This story in Genesis 6 is a story about God's holiness. There is going to be a flood. And there's going to be a flood because of this, because God is holy. That is as much a part of God as his love. When he said that he was going to destroy the earth, it wasn't on a whim. He created us for fellowship with God. And when that was rejected by humans so completely, God finally looked at creation and said, no more. He waited patiently. While the ark was being built, he waited patiently. And by the way, that describes how God is with us right now, right? Patient, waiting, waiting to do the extreme makeover of the earth one last time. And I am thankful, along with the fact that God is holy, that God is patient. This is a story about his holiness. This is also a story about great faith. Because when God came to Noah and told him to build an ark, he was telling him about something that Noah couldn't see, something that no one had ever seen. Nobody had ever seen a worldwide flood. Nobody had ever seen a, a floating vessel of the type that he was told to build. No one anticipated what was going to happen. And it was decades away from happening when Noah was told to do something about it. Jesus said... That in the days of Noah, people were basically just living their lives like nothing was going to happen. Like nothing was going to change. They didn't expect what was about to happen. So as much as Noah may have talked about it, he was building on something that no one could see. You might even say that by faith, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. It's a story of extreme faith. It's also a story of extreme obedience. I noticed this. The record makes it a point of Noah's obedience. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did what? All that the Lord had commanded him. 
And then several times it records the details of how Noah did exactly what God told him to do. Folks, this took a long time, somewhere around 75 years. 75 years devoted to building a project for an unseen future event. Noah's faith in God pushed him through extreme obedience. This is also a story of impending doom. You know, the cartoon versions of a, of a cute little boat with two elephants and two giraffes on top of the deck looking around usually don't include the fate of everyone who wasn't on the ark. People drowning all around just doesn't make for a very nice mural on the nursery wall. But don't miss this fact. This account is very explicit. Everyone not on the ark dies. Chapter 6, verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. How many things died besides what was on the ark? Everything. Everything. There's no question about what happened to anyone who wasn't on board with this. I don't care what someone in a movie tried to say about it. It's very explicit, isn't it? It is a story of impending doom. It's also a story of a new beginning. I wonder what conversations Noah had with his family after the, after the flood was over and after they stepped onto dry land. I wonder if they felt the burden and a sense of incredible obligation to get life on earth right now that it was starting over. And I wonder how much their experience, how much their survival caused these eight people to turn to God with grateful hearts and to obey him every day just because they were alive. In fact, the very first thing that we read about Noah doing after he comes off of the ark is building an altar to God and offering him a sacrifice. We can learn a lot from Noah, can't we? Boy, if we only had another hour or two this morning. In fact, we should learn a lot from Noah. Parents, grandparents, learn those lessons. Teach those lessons to your children. But let's not stop there. As it turns out, the story of Noah, the details of the story of Noah, and of the ark are a shadow, a type, of something greater. It's a type, it's an impression, it is a clue that God has laid out in his plan so that after the cross, under God's new covenant, we can understand even more. You see, God was doing something in this flood event that highlights something you and I have in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 20. This is really the text I want us to look at this morning to see the antitype concerning Noah. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the wording here is a little bit cloudy. This is a challenging passage, and so I want to read back over the flood story. And as I do that, I ask myself, all right, what is it exactly that saved Noah? It says Noah was saved through water. Was it the fact that God had given him a warning, that God had given him information and warned him about things as yet unseen? Was it because of the patience of God that God waited patiently while the ark was being built? Was it the fact that Noah built the ark? Wouldn't have been saved without building it, apparently. Was it the ark itself that saved Noah? Was it because there was enough material and enough time to get the job done? Was it because God held the ark together, that God landed it safely in the mountains of Ararat, something that Noah could not have done? Was it the water that lifted up the ark while the rest of life on earth was buried and destroyed? The water raised the ark up. Is it because of that? Was it faith that saved Noah? The fact that Noah did this by faith because he wouldn't have if he didn't have faith. What saved Noah? Would he have been saved without hearing a warning from God before the flood? Would he have been saved if he didn't have faith? Would he have been saved without God supplying the materials? Would he have been saved without building the ark according to God's design? Would he have been saved without the ark itself? Would he have been saved if he didn't get on the ark? Would he have been saved if God had not held the ark together? Would he have been saved without the water of the flood lifting the ark up above the waves and the mountaintops? You see, if you take any one of those things away... None of this would have worked, would it? Fact is, it turns out for all the work and wonder that there are in the story of the ark, there is also a wonderful picture of salvation on this side of the cross where you and I live. God could have restarted the whole earth project from scratch. The hundreds and hundreds of years of history that already had taken place he could have, couldn't he? Just have erased those completely. Genesis could have had a verse in it that said, in the second beginning, God created again. Instead, God sets into motion this long, demanding plan. You can visit the ark, by the way. <clears throat> well, a two-scale version of the ark of how it may have looked. We went down there, Carrie and I did a couple years ago, down to Williamstown, Kentucky, built by Answers in Genesis, the Ark experience. They completed this huge project. I commend it to you. Some of you have been there, I know. It's a great way to shore up your understanding of Scripture just to appreciate the feasibility of this whole story. We sent some pictures 
of ourselves, by the way, on the ark, sent those to our grandkids. And the next week, they were really excited to tell their Sunday school teacher how their grandparents had been on Noah's ark. <laughs> that was news to them. Well, it took Ken Ham and, and Answers in Genesis over six years to build that ark to scale in Kentucky. It took Noah somewhere around 75 years. Without all the suppliers and the applied energies that we have today, he did it in about 75. But when it was done, the story of Noah made a picture of our salvation that helps you and me to understand and appreciate it better today. And just like it becomes an exercise in futility to compartmentalize what about the ark exactly saved Noah? What could be left out and Noah still make it? It becomes futile to compartmentalize our salvation in some effort to leave out some part of it. Why would we do that? Rather than taking this very deliberately designed plan from God and appreciating what he has given to us. We don't have some record of Noah saying, Lord, I know that you said 450 feet by 75, but the beam lengths on this is going to work out to where it would be more financially expedient to build it 440 by 75. Could we maybe, I don't know, leave off the unicorns or something and just shorten it a little bit? Lord, I know you've said this is going to involve water, a lot of water, but can we just go through all the motions and show that I'm sincere and then skip the flood part? Dramamine hasn't been invented yet. As far as I know, Mrs. Noah has motion sickness, I think. Maybe we could just set the ark up in our backyard kind of as a statement about our faith in you. Lord, I know that when all of this is said and done, it's actually going to be you that holds it together, not me. Is there a way that you could make it so it's my work that counts? Or maybe since it's all up to you anyway, you could just leave me out of this entirely, except for the part of saving my life. No. Remember? Noah, what? Did all the Lord commanded. If he didn't, would God uphold his promise? There is a crowd of people who can't seem to fit what Peter writes here into the rest of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Look at it in the English Standard Version. That's the one I'm preaching out of week to week, usually. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just have click through up on the screens here this morning several other translations of this same verse and the way that multiple translations of the Bible render this same verse. New International, King James, Holman Christian Standard, Revised Standard, on and on goes this list. Just take a look at the wording that's used there in English. Even clear down to the message, the paraphrase, which says that you're saved 
from the water, by the water, the waters of baptism, do that for you. The word that Peter puts here when he's talking about baptism is the one place in the New Testament where this word antitype appears. The way that Noah was saved, he says, through water is a foreshadowing, is a type of a reality, the antitype, baptism, which Peter says now saves you. Just as Noah was saved, so what happens at baptism saves people in the New Testament age. That's how Bible types work. The type happens, and it points to something greater. And the greater thing is what Peter is talking about here, something that's coming. The ark and the water of the flood are a shadow that points to this great reality called baptism. So what can I learn from this type, the story of, of Noah and the ark? What can I learn from that? I'm glad you asked. Here are three things I think that we can walk out with this morning. Number one is this, that obedience to God means doing all that he has said. Amen? Why do people fight this? If anything, anything will assure that we can live forever with the Lord. Why? Why would we resist that? If God asks anything from us, why would we ever suggest that there should be exceptions, that there should be a list of things that God really wants, but that we don't really need to do? Jesus said in the church, our commission is to make disciples. That basically consists of two things, baptizing people and teaching them to do everything that he has commanded. Obedience to God means doing all that he has said. Here's the second thing we can walk out with, and that is that God often uses the long way to do things. Amen to that. When you decide to follow God's plan, remember this, that his ways are not our ways, and his ways will often leave us scratching our heads asking why. Somebody has said that the words that you will most often hear repeated in heaven will be, Ah, now I get it. Don't panic. There is one God, and you are not him. And the way that he does things will often not be the way that we will choose. To get what he wants done, God will often use the long way. He'll send a worldwide flood, a burning bush, a talking donkey, He'll split the Red Sea. He'll have you march around Jericho for seven days. He won't do things the way that you and I would design, and it won't always be in our timing either. As my friend Steve Bycroft always said, God is never late and seldom early. His ways are not ours. He often uses the long way. Here's another lesson I see in this, and that is, remember this, that God saves us to a new life. By Genesis 9, when they're coming off the ark, Noah and his whole family are moved into an entirely different life. The whole geology, the whole ecosystem of the world is changed. 
Human government is instituted in a way that it wasn't. Animals, by the way, are now on the menu. They weren't before. And these four families had to learn and develop a completely new way of life that God had saved them to. And that's true of you and me. When we come to Jesus Christ, we're moved into an entirely different life. We're moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have to learn now to live as his new creation. That old life needs to be put aside. By the way, how is any of this possible? How can I possibly put away my old life? How could I possibly be rid of the things, the things that I have said, the things that I have thought, the things that I have done? How can I be past all of that? I'm glad you asked that. How is it possible that God could preserve human and animal life on a floating vessel and start the earth all over? Remember what Peter wrote here? That this event in our lives is not about the removal of dirt from the flesh, not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism into Christ is our appeal to God. Lord, how can I be made new? How can I put away my past? Will you remove my sins from me as far as the east is from the west? Will you make me a new person? Will you give me a new start? How can this be? And God has given us this promise. Just as surely as he saved Noah and his family while the rest of the world was destroyed, he saves us to a new life. And just as Noah did all that the Lord commanded, I hope you hear it this morning. We need to respond to his offer to be saved. That's the story from Noah. Maybe this morning that's something you've contemplated in the past and, and looking now at that image that God painted for us through a story thousands of years ago before even Jesus was born you understand, oh, this is what I need. I hope today you'll make that decision. Maybe you've already made that decision in your life and you're looking at your life and thinking, you know, just like Noah was, was moved from that old world and old life to a brand new life, I'm supposed to be living like that. I forgot about that. And you've had a, a moment and it's time to remember it again. We've got things to do with God's Word, don't we? When we hear it, when we look at it together, we've got something to do. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to make decisions about what you're going to do with God's Word. Let's stand up together. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that marks <clears throat> the end of our worship time together. But it also marks a time when we're encouraging you, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, to make that decision today to say goodbye to the old life, to come in faith to him, to be baptized into him. If it was Noah, he'd be saying to get on the boat. Let's pray.
Father, thank you this morning for using people, uh, Noah, who was found faithful in your eyes, who found favor in your eyes. God, I pray that we can learn from him, from that story, what it is you want us to learn today. Not just so that we'll know a story, but so that we'll have wisdom and skill for our lives and also, Father, a motivation in our hearts that leads us to that kind of obedience to you. Thank you, Father, that you have the escape plan, that you, in spite of our rebelliousness, have made a way that we can be saved. And I pray today, Father, that we would not in any way resist your grace, your kindness, your patience offered to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.